today on Mind Matters News. Uh, this is uh, Michael Egner. I have the great privilege of interviewing uh, Dr. Andrew Newberg, uh, who is a, a pioneer in the field of neurotheology. Uh, that is a field in which uh, he studies the theological uh, correlates of activity in the brain. And uh, so it's uh, my privilege, and I'm very excited to interview Dr. Newberg today. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your program. Thank you, Andy. I just want to give a, there, our audience uh, just a little summary of uh, who you are. Um, you are a professor uh, in the Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Sciences and the Director of Research at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. Uh, in Philadelphia. And also you have been an adjunct professor of religious studies and a lecturer uh, on the biological basis of behavior program at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, you are a, a prolific uh, researcher, uh, a physician, uh, and uh, you have published 10 books and uh, are really considered a, a pioneer and one of the world's experts on neurotheology. And uh, just going forward, uh, one of the book titles fascinates me, and I'd like to talk to you more about that. The book title is Why We Believe What We Believe, which I think is of great interest to our audience and is of great interest to me. So, Andy, could you uh, describe uh, your research to us, please? Sure. Well, uh, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of the work that I have been doing uh, has been in this field that has been ultimately called neurotheology. And... Um, to me, the, the simplest definition of that term is uh, more or less, as you said, that it's really the study of the relationship between uh, our religious and spiritual selves and the human brain. There's a couple of important points that I like to mention about just what this field is all about. Um, first of all, for me, uh, it is what I like to refer to as a two-way street. It is not just science looking at religion. It is not religion looking at science, but it is both of them really looking at each other to help us understand who we are as human beings, recognizing that there's a biological part of ourselves, the brain and our body and so forth. Um, there's a spiritual part of ourselves, which can be you know more specifically religious, but can also incorporate other spiritual activities. Uh, and of course, there's also a psychological and a social part, which are ultimately kind of all wrapped up in these different dimensions of who we are. The other thing I always like to say about neurotheology is that it, you know if it's going to work, for, at least for me as a term, I like to define both sides of that very broadly so that the neuro side um, is not just uh, neuroscience or neuroimaging, but it can include psychology, it can include anthropology. It can include uh, medical aspects, you know, how we how different diseases and so forth are associated, you know, what happens when we develop different diseases and whether they may be associated with uh, different religious and spiritual experiences or how people turn to religion and spirituality in, in times of uh, health crises and so forth. Um, so, so the neuroside to me needs to be defined very broadly. And of course, theology itself is a very specific discipline where we're talking about taking the, the kind of the primary tenets, the, the sacred texts of a given tradition and, and trying to understand what they mean and how they relate to us as human beings. And we certainly can look at that from a, a brain-related perspective. How does the brain think about these things? You mentioned the book, Why We Believe What We Believe, um, which has, has always, I felt, been a very important book that we uh, put together and, and looks at beliefs, um, different experiences, attitudes, behaviors, and so forth. So again, for, for me, the theology side has to include all of these different aspects, including 
um, various practices like meditation and prayer, uh, other types of spiritual practices and experiences, and, uh, and and also really trying to look at this from a very global kind of perspective. So we're looking at you know, many different uh, traditions, and we can certainly talk about this in a little bit more detail later, but we've done brain scan studies, for example, of lots of different practices from almost every different tradition. And that to me is very exciting to be able to see the relationships and interrelationships and so forth that are very important for us in terms of understanding the overall impact of religious and spiritual beliefs and phenomena in our lives as human beings and how that has an effect on us. So um, a lot of the work that I have done, as I mentioned, has really been looking at the, the, using imaging studies, but there's other aspects that are really very important, and, and I'm sure we'll get into them, but there's looking at different medical conditions. As I mentioned, um, we've done some phenomenological studies looking at how people describe different kinds of experiences. So, so there's, to me, it's an extraordinarily rich field uh, of work, a very multidisciplinary field that um, gives us, I think, a very exciting opportunity to find ways of, uh, of bringing religion and science together, which I think is important. And, uh, and again, I think, you know, to me, the ultimate ideal is helping us to understand who we are as human beings. In terms of brain scanning, what, what methods do you use to study the brain? Well, uh, we've been very fortunate to be able to use uh, a whole array of different techniques. Um, as one of my uh, old mentors used to say, if you're going to be a good carpenter, it's good to have a lot of different tools in your basket. And um, and I think to a certain extent, uh, we've been very fortunate to be able to have a lot of different imaging tools to be able to use. Uh, my background in, in the medical world is actually in nuclear medicine. And so that does involve um, injecting different types of radioactive tracers to look at different physiological processes in the brain or in the body. And we have done that with two main types of imaging, one called SPECT, uh, which is single photon emission computed tomography and PET positron emission tomography. Pretty similar in terms of how they work, that we inject this radioactive tracer. Maybe it follows blood flow or metabolism or you know, some aspect of the brain's function. And we inject that sometimes uh, while people are engaged in a particular practice like meditation or prayer, uh, sometimes a, a kind of before and after. Uh, we did an interesting study of people going through a spiritual retreat program. And, uh, and then we take a picture of the brain. We see where this material went, and it tells us something about the activity levels of the brain during different kinds of states. So we might uh, look at somebody while they're in prayer and compare that to a meditation state or compare that to a resting state or something like that. Uh, and the other main imaging tool that, that I've been fortunate to use is um, functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI, which uh, you know basically uses a big magnet to be able to look at, again, kind of different physiological processes like blood flow or neuronal activity. And, uh, and there too, we have looked at different practices while you know people are meditating or just the effect of doing those meditation practices in terms of things like anxiety or depression and so forth. And sometimes that has more of a therapeutic uh, bent to it. But um, uh, one of the, the interesting sort of advantages or disadvantages of these techniques with the MRI, you really have to be in the scanner while you're doing the practice. And sometimes that's, that's very doable. People can do a prayer practice or certain meditation practices lying very still in the scanner itself. But other practices are much more difficult to do that. For example, we did a really fascinating study of people speaking in tongues where they're making these different vocalizations and they're moving around and so forth. So by injecting them with this little uh, radioactive tracer while they're doing that practice, we can then scan them 
a period of time after they're done when they can lie still, but it kind of captures a snapshot. It captures what their brain was doing at the moment that they were doing the practice. And again, then we can say, okay, well, this is what we see going on in the brain when they're speaking in tongues, when they are saying a prayer or whatever. And um, so those have been the main tools. And and, and other people have used things like uh, electroencephalography, EEG, to look at electrical changes in the brain. Um, So people are using a whole bunch of different arrays. And and, and really, it's been a growing field of work to look at these practices from a variety of different vantage points using the technologies that we currently have. Of course, there's there's an enormous uh, literature and body of knowledge on um, people's experience uh, in various religious disciplines. How does this add to our understanding uh, of spirituality? Uh, how does the use of you know functional MRI imaging, inspect imaging, and and, and EEG, uh, what does that contribute to our knowledge of religion beyond what we know from the great texts, from theologians, all, all those things? Sure. Well, and and I think that is an incredibly important point, which is that you know to me it it is a you know it provides a contribution. It provides an added perspective that perhaps we just haven't had the ability to to look at before. But in no way, shape, or form does it you know eliminate or get rid of what those great theologians and and what people through you know through the millennia have had in terms of their experiences and the beliefs that they hold. So you know, on one hand. Uh, you know, when if somebody is a deeply religious individual, that's what's important. Um, and so, in that context, uh, you know, being able to say that their parietal lobe did something or their frontal lobe did something doesn't really change. Uh, you know what's going on in terms of their own beliefs. It's it's, it's sort of like saying, um, you know, if we do a brain scan of somebody who uh, we're, we're trying to study love, for example, I mean, it doesn't mean that if we understand what areas of the brain are involved, that people should you know stop falling in love. Um, it, it just gives us this new insight into a little bit about how it works and how these beliefs and these experiences have an effect on us. And in that context, I think there is some real value because it does provide some knowledge about how being a religious or spiritual individual or doing a spiritual practice may actually have an impact, you know, not only on the spiritual part of who they are, um, but on the biological part and the psychological part as well. And so, um, you know, sometimes it's helpful for us to understand uh, a little bit more about how these different practices affect us. Um, Are they affecting different areas of our brain? Um, You know, one of the things that I think is fascinating is that, you know, even when you talk about prayer, for example, well, there's so many different types of prayer and there's prayer that evokes powerful emotions. There's prayer that is deeply cognitive. There's prayer that is contemplative. And a a valid question is, you know, how are they related to each other? How similar, how different are they? Uh, And again, you know, there's certainly the theological explanation about what their similarities and differences, but does that correlate with something that's different in our brain? Is it tell us something about how our brain intersects with those different practices? And does that in some regard teach us a little bit, you know, if we think that uh, a particular prayer practice evokes powerful emotions, are we seeing areas of the, you know, of the limbic system, the emotional centers of our brain? turning on um, does it does that correlate with us in terms of uh, does it correlate with the findings uh, and this descriptions that people have of those practices um, I think the other thing too I mean there there's always a, a more practical aspect as well which um, you know is, is certainly important for a lot of people which is you know when people engage in 
various spiritual practices for spiritual purposes, for religious purposes. Um, sometimes it helps them feel better. It helps them to cope. It helps to reduce their anxiety or their, their, their depression. And, you know, from a biomedical perspective, sometimes it's helpful to see, well, is that having an impact in the same way that psychotherapy may have an impact or even a medication may have an impact? Is it settling down our, our, our amygdala, our limbic system so that people are less anxious? Um, is it turning on certain areas of our brain to help us feel less depressed or bringing more dopamine into the brain to make us feel, you know, have a heightened mood? So I think that there's, you know, there's that ability as well. And again, you know, uh, this does not lead us down a path of saying, well, you know, if you have depression, we have a brain scan that shows that uh, that this prayer practice can help alleviate depression. You should do this prayer. Um, but what I think it does help us understand is that when people do have depression, if they happen to find that particular prayer practice of, of value to them, maybe we understand a little bit more about how it's working. How is it helping them? And, uh, and, and I think that that helps us to understand a little bit more, you know, the, the overall relationship between our spirituality and, uh, and our psychological selves. And, and maybe the last way of answering your question, which to me is also quite fascinating, is the whole discussion of human consciousness. Um, you know, how do we actually think about ourselves, how to become aware of ourselves, aware of the world around us? And of course, in some of these, you know, very profound spiritual states, uh, mystical experiences and so forth, uh, people are able to really alter their their levels of consciousness and trying to understand that, uh, I think, may, may provide us an opportunity to be able to say something about uh, the nature of human consciousness as well. So, so I think in many ways, the answer to your question is that it kind of cuts across, you know, some very, what might be called esoteric ideas, you know, just about what, what prayer is and what these spiritual beliefs and experiences are and teaches something about how, how they operate within us, uh, to things about how the brain works, how the mind works, how consciousness works to the more sort of pragmatic, um, you know, even therapeutic kind of concepts about, well, if you do a prayer practice, is this changing your brain in a way that may help you with depression or may protect you against Alzheimer's disease or something like that. And, uh, so I, I think there's a lot of very, uh, interesting and very exciting ways of, of taking it depending on what a particular person is interested in exploring. Certainly from, from what I know of your work, um, I, I, I'm very impressed. I think it's a fascinating topic and I, I, think, I, th I think you're doing wonderful work. There is a um, critique of neuroscience, uh, particularly cognitive neuroscience, uh, that has been um, uh, given by Roger Scruton, who's a, a philosopher. I, th I think he passed away recently. But, um, and he described neuroscience in, in, in a, an extraordinarily succinct but I think accurate way when he said that neuroscience is a vast collection of answers with no memory of the questions. <laughs> and um, what 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 I like, and what I've read of your work, and what you're describing is is that you you are pretty serious about the questions uh, because uh, one can get so lost in the uh, methodology and data produced by neuroscience that you really forget the questions that we're trying to trying to answer. Do you either have uh, or have or have you acquired any? particular um, metaphysical perspective on the relationship between the mind and the brain? Uh, is your work showing you a, a materialist perspective, an idealist perspective, a dualist perspective? Do you, has that entered into your work? 
Uh, well, thank you. I mean, those are all wonderful points um, and uh, extraordinarily challenging questions to answer. Um, yes. uh, <laughs> and I, have you, know, you I, solved mind-body problems? Right. I, right. I figured it out last week. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, um, well, going back to your, your your point about the critique, first of all, I mean, I, I think it, it's really right on the mark. I mean, you know, so much. In fact, part of why to me neurotheology has a value is that it's not just about the science, but it is about the philosophical issues and the theological questions um, that we ultimately are really trying to answer. I mean, in, in my mind, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of times people ask me, you know, how I got interested in this, and in many ways, um, it was really a philosophical pursuit to understand the nature of reality and how we as human beings understand that reality, and so. Uh, so much of what I think we need to learn in this context is, is is what are the questions and how do people process the answer to the questions? How do we go through our own thought processes? How do we engage them in different kinds of ways? And um, and so you know, from in fact, one of the things that we've started to get more into actually has been to actually ask people those questions. And that to me is is also actually fundamentally important. That um, it's not just the great theologians who have cornered the market on answering these questions, but what does everybody think? You know, what do other people think about? God's existence and 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 how do they come to those ideas and and what does God mean and how does you know how do they understand what God is for example so i i think that you know part of what we want to do is explore the nature of those questions and then see where when we can bring some scientific uh, information into the discussion um does it help us does it give us a new insight does it not really help at all and you know, I would say to answer your your bigger question, when it comes to those metaphysical questions, I think that uh, you know, from my own personal perspective, um, one, I think we have to be extremely careful about how we interpret results of of any scientific study. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's always important to be open to open to the the materialist perspective, open to the supernatural perspective, uh, and and open to ways of perhaps trying to find uh, an integrated approach that kind of finds ways of linking them together, uh, whatever whatever that means. Um, and so, you know, in in my own uh, sort of heart of hearts, you know, a lot of what I do is actually very contemplative. Um, I spend a lot of time thinking about those questions and how the the different pieces of information that I have. Uh, been able to look at it in terms of brain scans and so forth. You know, what does that actually mean, and how do we understand it? And and I guess, and I'm not sure if this is another answer to your question, but um, if my fundamental question is sort of, you know, how do we know what's real, and if what we perceive to be real is accurate? Part of what I, I've always thought about is is that in some sense you have to get outside of your brain, whatever that means. Um, look at the world and then see if what the way the world is out there is consistent with what you're thinking on the inside. Now, from a kind of cognitive neuroscience perspective, there's no way to do that. But from a, a philosophical or theological perspective, a, a, a spiritual perspective, we have these experiences, you know, certainly the, the more intense spiritual experiences or mystical experiences where people describe that kind of a state, where they say that they have gotten beyond their brain, that they have gotten beyond their consciousness. They've become one with God. They've become one with the universe. And I, I, I can't, you know, I, I can't say that those are, you know, absolutely true either, but 
you know, boy, they're, you know, incredibly fascinating experiences that I think really require a lot of effort to explore and understand and understand them both from the perspective of the experiences themselves, as well as from the perspective of, well, how does that still connect to whatever is going on in a, in a physical world and in their brain? So, um, so I certainly don't have the answers yet. Uh, although I do, I have always said that if I ever figure it out, I will certainly let everyone know. Um, <laughs> as, soon but, as, uh, <laughs> yes, right. as soon as possible. As soon as possible. But, um, but 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 I do think you know I, I think we have to be really careful and, uh, and 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 if you'll indulge me for a second I mean one of my favorite little stories is about the study that we did of a group of Franciscan nuns and it was a very small study and um, you know I had uh, the nun had come in one of the nuns had come in and we did her brain scans and I showed her what was going on in her brain when she was doing a kind of prayer called centering prayer versus when she was was just at rest and and after I showed her all the changes that went on in her brain she thanked me so much. She thought it was so wonderful to be able to see. Uh, you said, "Thank you, Dr. Newberg, for showing me how the prayer practice, you know, r- really validates my ability to connect with God, and it ha- how it has an impact on me and my brain and my body." And she was, you know, really just so appreciative. And I said, "You're welcome." And you know, off she went. And I felt, you know, very good that I had uh, helped to make this nun happy. And then um, after we published our our study, I had a call from the uh, uh, the head of the uh, local atheist society. And I said, you know, somewhat sheepishly, hello, and and how are you doing? And they said, you know, I just wanted to thank you so much for doing this study and proving that, you know, God is nothing more than a manifestation of your brain's function and that, you know, religions are just, you know, we we can just reduce all religion to the brain. And I sort of said, well, you're welcome. (laughs) And, you know, off he went and he was happy. And, uh, you know, somewhere in, you know, in in the yin yang of the universe, there was, you know, I thought it's kind of amazing that one study could make a nun and an atheist happy at the same time. (laughs) But, um, uh, but, but it underlies the point, I think, which is that, you know, the beliefs and the biases, and and this is, you know, we talk about this in the Why We Believe book, um, you know, the beliefs that we hold going into whatever pieces of information we look at affect greatly how we interpret them. And so, you know, I always say, well, you know, all the brain scan is showing ultimately is what's going on in her brain when she has that experience. Um, it doesn't prove that God is or is not in the room with her. It's just showing you what's happening in her brain. And, um, but from that information, you know, how far can we go and what can we say about these experiences and their effects? And, and so I still think that while we may not necessarily be able to truly answer the metaphysical questions, um, certainly, you know, we're not going to do that just by doing a brain scan. Um, maybe by, by bringing all of these different elements together, we might get a little bit closer than we ever have before, but I, I don't know. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, and uh, let's continue this in our next segment, uh, but I'm very grateful to uh, Dr. Newberg uh, for this fascinating discussion, and we will be continuing shortly. Uh, thank you very much. This has been Mind Matters News. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.